Welcome to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast, and I'm here with my co-host, Aliyah Hussein. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and give us some comments and ratings. Hey, listeners, we've got another great episode up this month. Our advocacy director, Nadia Ben Youssef, speaks to staff attorney Diala Shamas and client Ziad Alwan about our intervention into a case filed by Israeli settlers against Airbnb following the company's decision to remove listings on settlements. Diala and Ziad discuss Ziad's family history on the land and why he decided to intervene, the status of the case, and the need for corporations to respect human rights principles, and much more. Check out the show notes to find out where you can learn more about our case. Welcome to The Activist Files. I'm Nadia Ben Youssef. I'm CCR's Advocacy Director, and I am in the studio with staff attorney Diala Shamas and our client Ziad Alwan to talk about Palestine, Airbnb, cases that we filed, the vision that we have, and to have a conversation and to catch you all up on what's been happening here and where we're going. Thank you so much, Ziad, for being here with us. Thank you, Diala, for your extraordinary work. And I want to actually turn to you, Diala, to hear a little bit about the case. It has been such an honor to watch you work and to watch you take this case from start to where we are now and to keep pushing forward um, a story of resistance and um, and finding innovative ways to tell the Palestinian story. So I would love to hear a little bit about the case um, and where we are and a bit of where we're going before we turn to Ziad. Okay, well, it's exciting to be here. As you may recall, and was really widely reported on at the time, Airbnb in November of last year took a decision, which we're all feeling very positive about, to stop listing Israeli settlements on its website. And this was actually the result of like a two-year campaign mm -hmm. of advocates and organizers in Palestine and the U.S. in the corporate responsibility world, really pushing on this idea that companies should not be involved in settlements. And so it was viewed as a victory um, but it was also really rooted in pretty fundamental principles of international law. Not to anyone's surprise, the Israeli settler movement was immediately ready to challenge their decision and filed a lawsuit actually in the District of Delaware in a U.S. federal court. Weirdly enough, it brought the claims under the Fair Housing Act. So we have Israeli settlers who are suing Airbnb under the Fair Housing Act, which is a really important civil rights statute here in the United States. And they essentially argued that Airbnb is discriminating against settlers on the basis of their religion and on the basis of their nationality, which is Israeli. We saw that lawsuit and like, you know, the Palestinian in me was obviously insulted, but it was really the civil rights attorney in me that was mm. almost more incensed at this perverse use of the courts and these laws to further these like discriminatory ends, right? Mm. And so... At the time, I was in Palestine, and a few of us got together and started thinking, well, so a few of us here at CCR started thinking together about what our response could be. And one thing that was kind of glaringly obvious is that, like, obviously, there's something missing from this conversation between settlers and Airbnb, and that is the Palestinian voices and perspective. So we thought that if we could find the Palestinians who actually own the land that these settlers, who are also plaintiffs, so we call them settler plaintiffs, are renting their houses on, then those Palestinians would have a really strong argument to be able to intervene in that lawsuit, mm. argue that they have an interest in the outcome of the litigation, and that they should be heard. 
um, they would also be able to countersue and bring counterclaims. And that's actually how I met Ziad, uh, who's on this podcast with us. So I'm going to turn it over to him. Ziad, tell us a little bit about how, when I first reached out to you, like what your response was. Uh, well, first of all, that's uh, this land uh, they took uh, by the settlers or by the Israeli government, and they gave it to the settler, as everybody knows, after the occupation of uh, West Bank. And uh, they're stealing this land. We still have that document for this land. And Airbnb uh, doing this, uh, supporting those settlers, it's not right. I don't know why they're doing this. In the United States here, if you deal with the thieves, if you deal with somebody stealing stuff, it will be criminal. This is our land. This is my father's land for a long, long time. And Airbnb is uh, supporting those settlers. And I don't think they have the right to do this. This is a shame for Airbnb, a big company like this, supporting those settlers, stealing the land from the Palestinian people. I don't think this is a right. We want to see the truth for the whole, the, the whole world. This is what, what's going on back home. What's mm-hmm. going on in Palestine? What's going on? What the, the, the settlers doing for the Palestinian people? The, the Palestinian people suffering every day, every day for those settlers. Why those settlers will be support? from company like Airbnb? This is my question. Why? What's the reason? Money? I don't think it's worth it. So you and I have spoken a little bit about the process and what it's been like over the course of the past few months. And then you said you've had a lot of conversations with your family about the land and your mom's memories. Can you just like share a little bit of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this land, as I mentioned before, uh, this land, we, uh, my father, he had it from his father, and his father, he had it from his father. We're talking about many, many years, owned by uh, my family. And uh, my family, they used to, my father, uh, what I got told from my father and my mom, they used to uh, take care of this land, uh, make a lot of things in it, like uh, weed and uh trees and uh, some like those all the day they have to be as a, my father he's a farmer he's supposed to be a farmer and every day he have to go to that this land take care of it with with my mom with my older brother and a lot of time my mom when she talking about this land she talking with my kids they like to hear what the story is they have, she have a lot of memory a lot of good story a lot of, a lot of things and most of the time, she got, like, uh, crying. She's uh, 85 years old, by the way. One time she told me, I hope before I die, I see this land again. I want to see it. Because the settlers, they don't let us even go closer to this land. My mom hoped just to see the land one time before she died. I hope this will be happening. So when we had a lot of conversations um, over the course of the past few months in preparing for the lawsuit, and I told you many times, like, we don't know what the outcome is going to be, and we certainly aren't going to be able to prevent land theft, right, and get you your land back. And you always said something that really kind of stuck with me. I was, be honest with you, I was happy because there is somebody uh, standing with me, standing with my right, you know. Finally, I have somebody uh, listen to me. Uh, uh, he wanna somebody. He wanna take my voice to the to the media, to the people. 
what's going on? Yeah, I was I was excited to you know to doing to show the people to show the all the, the American people the American government everybody what's going on, what the truth is not like what we hear in the news. The news they don't say uh, all the truth. We need just the truth. We are not asking for big deal. We need only the truth. Only the people know what the truth is. Yes, and I, I appreciate this. You know, I appreciate anyone uh, standing with me to get my right back. You're leading us into the exact conversation, I think, Ziad, the idea of storytelling and telling the Palestinian narrative and disrupting an existing narrative that you said exactly in the media and in public discourse, in government that doesn't tell the truth, that in fact avoids the truth, misrepresents the truth in order to, you know, continue the injustice that is happening uh, to Palestinians. So I want both you and Diala really to to think about that, what this moment meant in terms of telling the Palestinian story and disrupting the myths that are perpetuated about what is happening in Palestine and who Palestinians are, what their rights are and what their claims are. I mean, it's funny because I think what we did is actually an intervention. Literally, we didn't file a new complaint. We intervened in an existing lawsuit that was um, about Palestinian land with no Palestinians involved. And that's exactly what our clients are saying. They're saying, hello, hey, we're right here. And to me, that's actually really appropriate and kind of summarizes and captures the state of the conversation in the United States right now, right? So what happened is you had Airbnb that took a position that was rooted in law, that was critical of Israel um, or the Israeli occupation. And then it was accused of being discriminatory against um, Jewish people or as Israelis instead of having the conversation be about the reasons that Airbnb took that decision. Mm-hmm. We're sitting there having an argument about whether or not it's anti-Semitic to criticize Israel. And that really is the uh, the moment right now that we're in. I mean, the way that the conversation around Israel and Palestine is in the U.S. is entirely about who has the right to speak and not about Palestinians and their experiences. And so in intervening and like literally laying in great detail in our counterclaims, our Palestinian clients' stories, the villages' stories, the stories of dispossession, and linking it directly to the plaintiffs who are settlers um, and what they did to our clients, I think we're really wanting to kind of re- to refocus and shift the conversation to where it really matters. Um, and that to me is in and of itself really valuable. We talk about this all the time, right? How it's frustrating to watch the dominant conversation, whether it's Ilhan Omar or Omar Barghouti. It's all about not letting them speak. It's all about whether you have the right to call for Palestinian rights. It's all about whether um, they have the right to say certain things in certain spaces. And we get so busy defending those rights that we're not able to actually talk about the thing that we're all there to talk about. Mm-hmm. And that is... a uh, significant victory um, and success of the uh, Israeli kind of organizations and, and advocacy groups um, here in the U.S. have shifted the conversation in that way. And I think that's a lot of what we need to be pushing back against and mm-hmm. like resisting caving into. Those who are speaking out for Palestinian rights are being silenced. Mm-hmm. Smears in media and in this case, litigation, mm-hmm. right? So 
they're up against a huge amount of state power and institutional power. Um, activists, obviously, we're thinking about what it means for activists who are sticking their necks out on Palestine or being silenced. And this was kind of the legal representation of that strategy. Airbnb took a principled decision and then was met with a huge litigation. And can you tell us what happened then, where right. we are now? <laughs> Airbnb was met with several lawsuits, not just one. So the one in Delaware and one in San Francisco and arbitration in New York, as well as litigation in Israel. In addition to dealing with the blowback of anti-boycott legislation that's popping up across the country. So, you know, places like Texas University were emailing their staff saying, we're no longer allowed to use Airbnb now, even though that was technically a misinterpretation of the law, but that you can imagine what that does to a company thinking a profit-oriented approach. And so the pressure on companies who are trying to abide by international law with regards to Israel and the occupied territories is significant. It's huge and um, was not enough. And Airbnb could not withstand, right? So they caved the pressure. And recently they uh, backtracked and they announced that they are no longer going to stop settlements from being listed on their website. And so now settlers can continue to list their um, houses on Airbnb. And so the settler plaintiff in Ofra, which is on Ziad's land, is still there. She still has her bed and breakfast. She's still running it. And um, Airbnb has also ironically announced that it's going to donate all of the proceeds from its business in settlements to humanitarian organizations, but significantly not humanitarian organizations that are even operating in the region. So this is like a prime example of how this pushback through the courts, through the public shaming, and through these kinds of legislative pushes really ends up being too much for many to withstand. And Airbnb caved really quickly, frankly. I think that they should be ashamed of themselves. After Airbnb took a decision to continue listing settlements on its website, they settled the lawsuits. Mm. And what we did is we filed a motion with the court requesting that our claims survive the dismissal of the underlying complaint because um, we made a case for significant interests and we have counterclaims against the settlers. Ziad, were you surprised by this decision by Airbnb to continue listing the settlement properties on your land in Palestine? Yes, I am surprised. As I told you, I am surprised why... Uh, they are uh, supporting those uh, settlers. Why supporting those uh, illegal settlers? Uh, they are uh, stoning the land. And uh, why, when we go to the settlers, Israeli settlers will be not crime? I surprised. Yeah, I surprised why they do this. Airbnb is a big company. With doing this, they want to lose their credibility for the people. No, I don't think anyone hear about this story. He want to deal with the Airbnb again because you are uh, dealing, you are supporting only good people, stealing the land and put it on your uh, website. How can I trust you? They're losing a lot of business. If they want to do it like a business way, they're losing a business in this way. Ziad, I want to talk about the other part of Airbnb's decision of how they said they're going to continue listing the settlements, but then they also said they're going to donate the money that they make in settlements to a humanitarian organization somewhere else in the world. What do you think about that? Well, uh, I think 
uh, they can't do it another way. You know, there is a, a lot of legal way to donate the money. Here, let's give you an example. If I want to go and rob uh, or steal a bank, and I said, what, why, why are you stealing the bank? Because I want to give it donated to the poor people. Do you think this is a reason? Is a good reason? The, the people, they accept this? I don't think so. Well, that's Robin Hood. But that... <laughs> yeah, but exactly, this is different. This is, exactly. Yeah. No, no, but this is, this is almost, for me, this is the same. Because <laughs> you're supporting those people stealing the land from the Palestinians. You want to make money from those people to steal the land. You said something great, Ziad, which is that now you know. And I'd, I'd be really interested, Diana, to hear kind of your reflections on that, having filed this motion to intervene and laid out these complaints and the violations of international law that the settlers are involved in by um, operating on stolen Palestinian land and uh, being complicit with the Israeli settlement enterprise. What -hmm. does that mean now for Airbnb that they know? Well, that's also a particularly frustrating part. I mean, look, advocates have been... uh, laying out very clearly for Airbnb and for others um, the extent to which their involvement in settlements is, you know, per, uh, continuing violations of, of human rights, right? Nobody can really claim to be ignorant of the consequences of the occupation at this point. It's the most overreported place in the world, arguably, right? But our clients and our intervention added a layer of very personal, individualized harm that are directly linked to these plaintiffs. And so it's not just that Ziad is any landowner who's intervening. You know, he owns the land that that the plaintiff from Ofra in Baal Levi is listing on Airbnb in a house that she advertises as being the site of the first settlement of Ofra, right? So not just any settlement, right? But the first house of the establishment of the one of the largest settlements in the Northern West Bank. And it's that kind of granularity that we really laid out in the complaint so that, A, they can no longer claim ignorance, but also to, like, confront them with the detail. And they had to read our papers. Um, Yet they still settled. And I do think that that's a slap in the face. At this point, they've, like, met our clients, basically. They've heard their stories. They've seen how their properties are involved in the dispossession of our clients, right, and in, in supporting these these settlers and the tourism industry um, in settlements, which is a really big part of how settlements also expand and sustain themselves, right? And that's another part of what we discussed in our pleadings is that the settlement enterprise leans heavily on bringing in people from the outside to come and then to stay. Um, not any people, Jewish people, to come and migrate to Israel and to, and to settle the occupied territories. And Airbnb, as part of that tourism industry, is part and parcel of that project, whether they want to or not. Many of our partner organizations have been really thinking a lot about the role of tourism and what it means when you choose to travel and just visit a place like the occupied territory. Airbnb doing like a driver, he drive a car and uh, see a people in front of him, and he closed his eyes and hit the people and said, I'm sorry, I don't see you. They they know everything. They hear everything, and they said, we don't know, I don't know. You know, exactly, exactly like the driver, as I told you. Well, I would, I might think about, you know, the this sort of turning point. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of the dramatic choices by governments and institutions in Palestine now 
our response to a sea change in discourse and advocacy and activism on Palestine. So there's so much positive things that are happening to advance Palestinian rights and um, claims for justice that the whole arm of the state is both in the United States and in Israel kind of clamping down or or making, it's in part the swan song of empire, right? It's that last grasp and gasp for all of historic Palestine, annexing land, taking over Jerusalem, denying the right of return, clamping down on activism and movement for Palestinian rights, passing legislation, litigating for it. It's a hard fight. It's that last fight because there's a breakthrough that is happening where the movement for Palestinian rights is expanding. It's it's intersectional and cross-movement. It's transnational. Um, and it's a really exciting moment. And I think when the moment and the movement is at its height, in its power, the state and institutions are going to fight hard to keep the status quo and to keep the the injustice alive. And it's failing, I think. I think it's failing. It, it's hard because we, we feel, you know, in, in the case of this litigation, we took one step forward. We had this really innovative intervention. We're able to tell the story. And then it kind of felt like we went two steps back. But I really would see it as a strength of the movement and of the innovation that we're bringing. And so I'm really hopeful in this mm-hmm. moment, despite everything. And, and maybe I would ask both you and Ziad to reflect on that and, and how you're feeling and, and what you can imagine moving forward, what this moment means for you. I have no doubt that most people at Airbnb know that they're on the wrong side of history. And... For us, it's just a matter of minimizing the harm in the interim and making sure that we support those who are most directly affected by these policies as much as we can as we move towards that kind of broader vision for justice. We'll see what happens in a few years, who knows how many years, when we revisit this chapter. I I think I'm really proud of the fact that we stepped in in the way that we did and that we continue to fight and that we continue to call for accountability and look for creative, legal, political, strategic interventions that can further support the Palestinians in our struggle for liberation. No one ever said it was going to be a quick victory. And certainly, I think nobody thought that when Airbnb took his decision in November, it was going to be the be all end all. It's all a matter of this iterative process, but I agree with you. It feels different right now. It feels like the energy is finally moving in the right direction. I see a lot of good people, you know, standing with us. Yes, that's. But uh, we need uh, the justice. The justice. Uh, the, this is what I'm missing. Uh, the justice uh, from the Palestinian people that are suffering every day uh, from the. Uh, this occupation from the settlers. But when we see uh, people like Central Constitutional Rights standing for the people, standing for the right of the people, the, they want to uh, took all the voices for those people out to the media. I feel, I feel there is, there is hope. There is a hope in the future. There is, I see some light in the end of the, the way. 
It was wonderful to speak to you both. And now for our Center for Constitutional Rights News Roundup. First, some good news. Our clients, the Ramapo Lenape Nation and the township of Mawa, New Jersey, reached a settlement in their pending lawsuits. Mawa and the neighboring Ramapo Hunt and Polo Club Homeowners Association had been seeking injunctions on the Ramapo's use of their own land for religious and cultural purposes. As part of the harassment, the Ramapo faced potentially millions of dollars in fines and several lawsuits. CCR filed a federal civil rights lawsuit on behalf of the Ramapo, charging racial and religious discrimination. As a result of the settlement, all the fines were dismissed, the Ramapo's religious items can remain on their land, and they may continue to have gatherings and conduct religious activity there. The settlement, however, was only with the town. The Hunt and Polo Club refused to settle, despite losing an earlier state case, so our federal case against them continues. Last week, the Inspector General of the New York City Police Department released a scathing report on biased policing. Despite NYPD and other city officials' repeated claims that this is a new era of policing in New York City, we've known the problems persist. The NYPD has handled more than 2,600 racial profiling complaints made by members of the public against its officers in the past four years, and the NYPD internal investigators found all 2,600 complaints to be unsubstantiated. The NYPD can't be trusted to police itself. Since we brought the landmark stop and frisk case, Floyd v. City of New York, we've been closely involved in all of the reform processes ordered by the court six years ago. We support the Inspector General's recommendation that the Civilian Complaint Review Board take over the investigation of racial profiling complaints. And until the NYPD fundamentally changes how it polices and deals with racial bias within its ranks, independent federal oversight of the department must continue. We filed an amicus brief with the Transgender Law Center in the Supreme Court. The case is about whether firing a transgender employee on the basis of their transgender status constitutes illegal sex discrimination, which is what we argue. Our brief highlights the stories of about 30 people who have experienced discrimination in the workplace for being transgender. It's really powerful. One of the stories comes from legendary transgender rights activist and Stonewall veteran, Miss Major Griffin Gracie. The people telling their stories come from all walks of life and from all over the country. The case will be heard next term, which begins in October 2019, and you can read the brief on our website. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court recently ruled against government transparency in contracts with private businesses. The court reversed four decades of precedent that barred private corporations from interfering with the government's obligation to release information through the Freedom of Information Act. We submitted an amicus brief, along with our co-counsel, the Center for Social Justice at Seton Hall Law School, on behalf of Detention Watch Network, Human Rights Defense Center, and Prison Policy Initiative. Our clients are organizations dedicated to exposing human rights violations in detention and prison, including in privately operated detention and prison facilities and services. Those are just some of the issues likely to be affected by this pro-corporate ruling. I just need you to say the real AF. The real AF. 
Welcome to The Real AF. We're joined by Africa O's, admin associate here at the Center for Constitutional Rights, as well as my co-host, Aaliyah. Hi, Africa. Hello. <laughs> Are, you right? Are you ready for some tough questions? <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> Would you rather read an awesome book or watch an awesome movie? Read an awesome book. I think when you read an awesome book, it you never want it to end. Sometimes when you're watching a really good movie, for me, I'm like, oh, I, I want to know what's going to happen at the end. So I'll Google it and just know the plot. You spoiler alert yourself. Yes, I do. <laughs> if it's like if it's if it's that interesting or it's too suspenseful, I'm trying to figure something out. I might, but with the book, I'll have incentive to keep wanting to read it so <laughs> I, I google at the end of movies like why Sometimes. if i don't like the end of a movie i'm like why did why did that happen yeah or if it's like a based on a true story i will yeah. be like mm-hmm. how did that end again yeah. I, I agree with you would you rather live a week in the past or a week in the future definitely a week in the future um maybe because i have, I'm only, have anxiety about the future but if i relived a week in the past I might feel even more paralyzed because I constantly rethink every decision and think, okay, maybe I should make, maybe I should go left instead of right today. But then I'll be like, hmm, maybe I should continue to go right. But instead of walking on this side of the sidewalk, I walk on the other. Too many, too many decisions to overthink that have already happened. <laughs> so I'd rather go in the future and try and guess what I did to make those things happen. Would you rather be on a survival reality show or a dating game show? Definitely survival. Um, the dating game is, I'd, I'm so awkward and shy, and I'd feel even more awkward with other people. And it's the competition, so I wouldn't know, like, how do I win? It, just, it would be too weird. I mean, they're both for ratings, so I probably, like, I'd do crazy things either way. But survival to test my limits and see. Um, there's this one called Naked and Afraid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know it well. <laughs> Uh, were you on it? No. Oh my god! <laughs> I wish. Well, I didn't know. No, my god! <laughs> I, no, I watch it a lot. I watch it a lot. Would you rather only use Twitter or only use Instagram? I say Twitter because when I think about the content I ingest from them, Instagram is definitely more unhealthy for me. Just like with all the blogs and celebrities and influencer culture, there it's magnified because it's just these pictures but with twitter at least like i can stay i can follow political figures um activist groups and just i learn a lot of really good content from twitter and a lot of things that we see on instagram and facebook originate there first so i definitely say twitter would you rather hold a snake or a tarantula well i've held a snake so (laughs) um I think I'll do snake because tarantulas have uh, warm, prickly skin. So I feel like I'd be more creeped out by that that feeling on my skin. And snakes, I've held them before, so maybe I'm just biased to that. I don't know. They seem more controllable. A tarantula can just start crawling and moving. And I, what if it goes on that weird part of your back that you can't reach? And then you have to shake it off. Like, I just, snakes. What was the snake experience like? I wasn't scared at all. It was like they had a, a big boa constrictor. I had one wrapped around my neck and my arms and stuff. It's, I wasn't scared at all. Um, I think maybe because the way visually I can see and understand what might happen 
with the tarantula. Like I said, I know it's going to move. I just don't know my escape plan with that. Do I shake it off? <laughs> what if it doesn't come off? <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining us, Africa. Thank you. Thank you.